Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present the Sandman Lullaby with your host, Patrick Sean Jones. Take this kiss upon the brow, and in parting from you now, thus much let me avow. You are not wrong who deem that days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away in the night or in the day, in a vision or in none, is it is therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of the surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep, though my fingers to the deep, while I weep, while I weep. O oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O oh God, can I not save one from the pitless wave? It is all that we see or seem, but a dream within a dream. Sandman Lullaby, here 
on RPA, Real Paranormal Activity. I'd like to thank each and every one of you that decided to uh, go ahead and click on this little phantom cast that uh, we do every once in a while when we have the chance to get near a microphone. Uh, Let me get out this real quick. Uh, It's just you and me. That's it. No guest. Just you and me. Actually, my time is right against the wall for this episode because I got an email from, uh, you know, I've been doing the uh, dream cycle stories of uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft, and I got an email, and one of the duders out there in the nether realm said, hey, uh, Mr. Patrick Sean Jones at Sandman Lullaby at gmail.com I would really like to hear you do uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep by Howard Philip Lovecraft and uh, it's a very long story and uh, I'm not a professional storyteller I'm a radio DJ and uh, I really try to put something together and I hope y'all really like it Uh, so just sit on back like I said it's just me and you And we're going beyond the wall of sleep. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Beyond the Wall of Sleep by Howard Philip Lovecraft. 1919. This story is in the public domain. I have had an exhibition of sleep come upon me. Shakespeare. I have frequently wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasional titanic significance of dreams and of the obscure world by which they belong. Whilst the greater number of our nocturnal visions are perhaps no more than faint and fantastic reflections of our waking experience. Freud, to the contrary with his symbolisms, there are still a certain remainder whose immundane and ethereal character permits of no ordinary interpretation, and whose vaguely exciting and disquieting effect suggests possible minute glimpses into a sphere of mental existence no less important than physical life, yet separated from that life by an all but impassable barrier. From my experience, I cannot doubt 
but man when lost in terrestrial consciousness is indeed subjugated in another and uncorporeal life of far different nature of life that we know, and of which only the slightest and most indistinct memory linger after waking. From these blurred and fragmentary memories we may infer much, but prove little. We may guess that in the dreaming life matter and vitality, as the earth knows such things, are not necessarily consistent, and that time and space do not exist as our waking selves comprehend them. Sometimes I believe that less material life is truer life, and that our vain presence on this tremendous globe is itself the secondary or merely virtual phenomenon. It was in this form, as a youthful revere, that I was filled with speculation of this sort that I arose one afternoon in the winter of 1900-1901, when to the state psychiatric institution which I served as an intern was brought the man whose case has ever since haunted me so unceasingly. His name, as given to the record, was Joe Slater, or Slatter, and his appearance was that of the typical dissident of the Catskill Mountain region. One of those strained, repellent, primitive peasant stock whose isolation for nearly three centuries in that hilly fastness of little traveled countryside has caused them to sink in this kind of barbaric degeneracy, rather than advance with their more fortunately placed brethren of that thickly settled district. Among these old folk, who correspond exactly to the dissident element of that white trash in the South, law and morals are not extinct, and their gentle mental status is probably below that of any other section of the Native American people. Joe Slater, who came to the institution in the vaguely custody of Forbes state policemen and who was described as a highly dangerous character certainly presented no evidence of his perilous condition when I first beheld him though well above middle stature and of somewhat brawny frame he was given an absurd appearance of harmlessness of stupidity by the pale, sleepy blueness of his small, watery eyes, the scantness and the neglect of a never-shaven yellow beard, of the listless drooping of the lower lip. His age was unknown, since among his kind neither family records nor 
permanent family ties existed, but from the baldness of his forehead and the decaying condition of his teeth, the head surgeon wrote down him as a man about the age of forty. From the medical and court documents we learned all that we could that we gathered about his case. This man was a vagabond, hunter, trapper, had always been strange in the eyes of his primitive associates. He had habitually slept at night beyond the ordinary hours, and upon waking would talk of unknown things and matters so bizarre as to inspire fear even into the hearts of his unimaginative populace. Not that his form of language was all that unusual. He never spoke save in the debased patrols of his environment, but the tone and the tenor of his utterances were so mysterious in wildness that none that might have listened would apprehend him. He himself was generally as terrified and baffled as his auditors, and within an hour after waking would forget all that he had said, or at least all that had caused him to say what he did, relapsing back into that half amiable normality like that of the other hill dwellers. As Slater grew older, it appeared, his maternal abhorrence had gradually increased in frequency and in violence, till about a month before his arrival at the institution had occurred the shocking tragedy which caused his arrest by the authorities. One day, nearly noon, after a profound sleep began and a whisky debauchery at about around five in the afternoon, the man had aroused himself almost suddenly, so horrible and unearthly that they had brought several of the neighbors to his cabin, a filthy sty where he dwelt with his family and himself. Rushing out into the snow, he flung his arms aloft and commanded a series of leaps towards the air, and while shouting his determination to somehow go to the big, big cabin with brightness in the roof and walls and floor, and the loud queer music far away. As the two men of moderate size sought to restrain him, he had struggled and with maniacal force and fury screamed his desire nearer to find and to kill that certain thing that shines and shakes and laughs. At length, after temporary felling one of his detentors, with a sudden blow, he flung himself at the other one in a bloodthirstiness, shrinking fiendlessly as he would jump into the air and burn his way through anything that stopped him. Family and neighbors had now flung away in panic, and when the more curious of them returned, Slater was gone, and leaving behind an unrecognizable pulp, pulp thing that had once been a living man an hour before. None of the mountaineers dared to pursue him, 
and lightly they would stop to welcome his death from the cold; but when several mornings later they heard the screams from a distant ravine, they realized that he had somehow managed to survive, and that the removal of one way or another would be necessary. Then had followed the armed searching party, whose purpose, whatever it may have been originally, became that of a sheriff's posse, after the one of a seldom populous State Trooper had been accidentally observed, then questioned, and finally joined the seekers. On the third day Slater was found unconscious in the hollow of a tree, and taken to the nearest gaol, where alienists from Albany examined him as soon as his senses returned. To them he told a simple story. He had said he had gone to sleep one afternoon about sundown, after drinking much liquor. He had awakened to find himself standing bloody handed in the snow before his cabin, the mangled corpse of his neighbor, Peter Slater, at his feet. Horrified, he had taken to the woods in a vague effort to escape the scene of what must have been his crime. Beyond these things he seemed to know nothing, nor could the expert questioning of his interrogators bring out a single additional fact. That night Slater slept quiet, and the next morning he awakened with no singular feature save a certain alteration of expression. Dr. Bernard, who had been watching the patient, thought he noticed a pale blue eyes of certain gleam of particular quality, and that in the flaccid lips on an all but impregnable tightening, as if an intelligent determination. But when questioned, Slater relapsed into his habitual vacancy of a mountaineer, and only reiterated what he had said the previous day. On the third morning occurred the first of the man's mental attacks. After some show of uneasiness and sleep, he burst forth in a frenzy of powerful effort of the four men that had to bind him in a straitjacket. The alienist listened with keen attention to his words, since their curiosity had been aroused to the high pitch by the suggestiveness yet most conflicting and incoherent stories of his family and neighbors. Slater raved for upwards of 15 minutes, babbling in his backwoods dialect of great edifices of light, oceans of space, strange music in shadowy mountains, and the valleys. But most of all did he dwell upon some mysterious blazing entity that shook and laughed and mocked at him. The vast, vague personality seemed to have done him a terrible wrong, and to kill it would be in a triumphant revenge was his paramount desire. In order to reach it, he said he would soar through the abysses of emptiness, burning every obstacle that stood in his way. Thus ran his discourse, until the greatest suddenness he ceased. The fire of madness died in his eyes, and the dull wonder he looked at his questioners and asked why he was bound. Dr. Bernard unbuckled the leather harness and did not restore it until night. 
when he succeeded in persuading Slater to don it of his own volition, for his own good. The man had now admitted that he sometimes talked queerly, though he knew not why. Within a week or two more attacks appeared, but from them the doctor learned little. On the source of Slater's visions they speculated at length, for since he could neither read nor write, he had apparently never heard of the legends or fairy tales his generous imagination was quite impeccable that it could not come from any known myth or romance was made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself only in his only simple manner. He raved of things he did not understand and could not interpret, things that he claimed to have experienced, but which he could not have learned through any normal or connexion narration. The alienist soon agreed that the abnormal dreams were the foundation of his troubles, dreams whose vividness could be that of time completely dominated the waking mind this basically inferior man. With due formality, Slater was tried for murder, acquitted on grounds of insanity, and committed to the institution wherein he held a humble post. I have said that I am a consistent speculator concerning the dream life, and from this you may judge of the eagerness which I have applied myself to this study of the new patient as soon as I had fully ascertained the fact of his case. He seemed a certain sense of friendliness to me, born no doubt of the interest I could not conceal and the general manner in which I questioned him. Not that he ever recognized me during his attacks, when I hung breathlessly upon his chaotic but cosmic word pictures. He knew me in the quiet hours, when he could sit by his barred window, weaving baskets of straw and willow, and perhaps pinning for his mountain freedom he would never enjoy again. His family never called upon him. Probably it had found another temporary head, after the manner of his dissident mountain folk. By degree I commenced to feel an overwhelming wonder at the mind of the fantastic conceptions of Joe Slater. The man himself was pitiable, inferior in mentality and language alike, but his growing titanic visions, though described in a barbarous and disjoined jargon, were assuredly things which only a superior or even exceptional brain could have conceived. How often asked myself, could this solid imagination of a cat-skilled degenerate conjure up sights who were very possession argued the lurking spark of genius? How could any backwards dillard have gained so much an idea of these glittering realms of supernatural radiance and space above which Slater ranted in his delirious forum? More and more I incline to the belief that in the pitiful personality who cringed before me lay the disordered nucleus of something beyond my comprehension. Something infinitely beyond the comprehension of my more experienced but less imaginative medical and scientific colleagues. And yet I could extract nothing definite from the man. 
the sum of all my investigations was that in a kind of semi-uncorporal dream life Slater wandered or floated through the repellent and prognathous valleys, meadows, gardens, cities, and palaces of light, in a region unbounded and unknown by man; that there he was no peasant or degenerate, but a creature of importance and vivid life, moving proudly and dominantly, and checked only by a certain deadly enemy, who seemed to be a being of visibly yet ethereal structure, who did not appear to be a human shape, since Slater never referred to it as a man, or as a thing. This thing done Slater some hideous but unnamable wrong, which the maniac, if maniac he was, yearned to avenge. From the manner in which Slater alluded to their dealings, I judged that he and the luminous thing had met on equal terms, that in his dream experience the man was himself a luminous thing of some race and his enemy. This impression was sustained by his frequent references to the flying thing through and burned and impending his progress. Yet these comprehensions were formulated in rustic words whose inadequately to convey them, and a circumstance which drove me to conclude that if true dream worlds indeed existed, oral language was not its medium for the transmission of thought. Could it be that the soul dream inhabited in this inferior body deliberately struggled to speak things which simple and halted tongues of deludedness could not utter? Could it be that I was face to face with an intellectual emulation which would explain this mystery if I could learn to discover and read them? I did not tell the older physicians of these things. For middle age is skeptical, cynical, and declined to accept new ideas. Besides, the head of the institution had but lately warned me, in his paternal way, that I was overworking, and that my mind needed to rest. It had long been my belief that human thought consisted basically of atomic and molecular motion, conceivable into either waves or radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. This belief early led me to the, contemplate the possibility of telepathic or mental communication by means of substituting apparatuses. And I had, in my college days, prepared a set of instrumentation and receiving items similar to the cumbrous device employed in wireless telegraph at that crude pre-radio period. These I had tested on a fellow student but achieved little results. Had soon packed them away with my other scientific odds and ends for possible further use. Now in my intense desire to probe into the dream life of Joe Slater, I sought these instruments again and spent several days in repairing them for action. When they were complete once more, I missed no opportunity for their trial. At each outburst of Slater's violence, I would fit the transmitter on his forehead and the receiver on my own, 
constantly making delicate adjustments for variations wave lengths of the intellectual energy. I had but little notion of how the thought impressions would, if successful, convey and arouse the intellectual response in my brain, but I felt certain I could detect and interpret them. Accordingly I conditioned my experiment, though informing no one of their nature. It was on the 21st of February, 1901, that the thing finally occurred. I look back across the years and realize how unrelated it seemed, and sometimes half wonder if old Dr. Fenton was not right when he charged that my excitement and my imagination. I recall that he listened with great kindness and patience when I told him, but afterward he gave me a nerve powder and arranged for a half year of vacation, on which I departed the next week. That fateful night I was widely agitated and perturbed, for despite the excellent care he received, Joe Slater was unmistakably dying. Perhaps it was his mountain freedom that he missed, or perhaps it was the turmoil of his brain had grown too acute for his rather sluggish physique, but all the event and the flame of vitality flickered low in the decadent body. He was drowsy near the end, and as darkness fell he dropped off into a troubled sleep. I did not strap the strait jacket on, as was customary when he slept, since I saw that he was too feeble to be of danger. Even if he woke in a mental disorder once more before passing away, but I placed upon his head and mine the two ends of my cosmic radio, hoping against hope for the first and last message from the dream world in the brief time remaining. In the cell with us was one nurse, a mediocre fellow who did not understand the purpose of the apparatus, or think of it, or inquire into my course. As the hours wore, I saw his head droop awkwardly into sleep, but I did not disturb him. I myself was lured by the rhythmic breathing of the healthy and dying man, and must have nodded a little later. The sound of a weird, lyric melody was that what arose me. Chords, vibrations, harmonic ecstasies echoed passionately on every hand, while on the sight it burst a stupendous spectacle of an unimagined beauty. Walls, columns, archives of living fire blazed effortlessly around the spot which I seemed to float in the air, extending to an infinite height, vaulted domes of irregular splendor, blending in this display of partial magnitude, or rather supplying it at times in a kaleidoscope of rotation, were glimpses of wide plains and graceful valleys, high mountains and inviting grottoes, covered 
every lovely attribute Of scenery in my delighted eye Which I could receive, yet formed wholly Of some glowing, ethereal, plastic entity, Which in comparison partook as much Of the spirit as in manner. I perceived My own brain held the key to these Enchanting metamorphoses, each vista Which appeared to me was only My changing mind's most wish to behold. Amid the Elysian realms I dwelt Not as a stranger, for the sight and sound Were familiar to me, just as they had been In uncounted aeons of eternity Before, and would be like entities to come. Then the opalescent aura of my brother of light Drew near, and held colloquy with me, soul to soul, With silent and perfect interchange of thought. The hour was of approaching triumph, For was not a fellow being escaping at last From its degenerating bondage, Escaping forever, and preparing to follow The accursed oppressor even unto the utmost fields Of ether, that upon it might be wrought A flaming chaos of vengeance, which would shake the spheres. We floated thus for a little time, When I perceived the sight blurring and fading Of the objects around me and around us, As though some force were recalling me to earth, Where I at least wished to go. The form near me seemed to feel and change it also, For it gradually brought its discourse to a conclusion, And itself prepared to quiet the scene, Fading from my sight at a rate somewhat less rapid Than that of the other objects. A few more thoughts were exchanged, And I knew that the Luminous One and I Were being recalled to bondage. Though my brother alight, it would be the last time, The sorry planet shell being well night sought, In less than an hour my fellow would be free To pursue the oppressor along the Milky Way And past the hither stars to the very confines of infamy. A well-defined shock separated my final impressions of the fading scene of light from my sudden and somewhat shameful awakening, and straightening up in my chair as I saw the dying figure of the couch move headlessly. Joe Slater was indeed awakening, though probably for the last time. As I looked more closely, I saw that the shallow cheeks shone spots of color which had never been there before. The lips, too, seemed unusual, being tightly compressed, as if by a force of stronger character that had been Slater's. The whole face finally began to glow tense, and the head turned restlessly with the closing eyes. I did not arouse the sleeping nurse but readjusted the slightly disarranged headbands on my telepathic radio, intending to catch any particular message the dreamer might have to deliver. All at once, the head turned sharply in my direction, and the eyes fell upon me, causing me to stare in a blank amazement in which I had beheld. The man who had been Joe Slater 
the Catskill descendant was now gazing at me with a pair of luminous, expanding eyes whose blue seemed subtly to have deepened. Neither mania nor degeneracy was visible in that glance, and I felt beyond a doubt that I was viewing the face behind which lay an active mind of higher order. At this juncture my brain became aware of a steady, eternal influence operating upon it. I closed my eyes to concentrate my thoughts more profoundly, and was rewarded by the positive knowledge that my long sought mental message had come at last. Each transmitted idea formed rapidly in my mind, and though no actual language was employed, my habitual association, conception, and expression was so great that I seemed to be receiving the message in ordinary English. Joe Slater is dead, came the soul-petrifying voice, agency from beyond the wall of sleep. My open eyes sought the couch of pain and curious horror, but the blue eyes were still calmly glazing, and the countenance was still intellectual animated. He is better off dead, for he was unfit to bear the active intellect of a cosmic entity. His gross body could not undergo the needed adjustments between ethereal life and the planet life. He was too much an animal and too little a man, yet it is though his deficiency that you have come to discover me. For the cosmic and the planet soul rightly should never meet. He has been my torment and diluted prison for forty-two of your terrestrial years. I am an entity that which you yourself become in the freedom of the dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light and have floated with you in the infancy of valleys. It is not permitted me to tell you of your waking earth self, of your real self, but we are all roamers on the vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year, I might be dwelling in dark Egypt, which you call ancient, or the cruel empire of Shan Chan, which is to come three thousand years hence. You and I have drifted to the worlds that reel about the red Altaurus and dwell in the bodies of the insect philosophers that crawl proudly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the Earth self know of its life and its extent. How little indeed ought it to know for its own tranquility. Of the oppressor, I cannot speak. You on earth have unwillingly felt its distant presence. You who without knowing idly gave to its blinking beacon the name Algol, Demon Star. It is to meet and to conquer the oppressor that I have vainly striven for eons, held back by a bodily encumbered. 
To night I go as a Nemesis, bearing a blazing catechism of vengeance. Watch me in the sky close by the demon's door. I cannot speak any longer, for the body of Joe Slater grows cold and rigid, and the coarse brain has ceased to vibrate as I wish. You have been my friend in the cosmos. You have been the only friend on this planet, the only soul to sense and seek for me within the repellent form which lies on this couch. We shall meet again, perhaps in the shining mists over Orion's sword, perhaps in the bleak plateau of prehistoric Asia, perhaps on remembered dreams tonight, perhaps in some other form an aeon hence, when the solar system shall have been swept away." At this point the thought waves abruptly ceased, and the pale eyes of the dreamer or can I say the dead man? commenced to gaze fishily. In the half stupor I crossed over to the couch and felt of his wrist, but found it cold, stiff, and pulseless. The sallow cheeks paled again, and the thick lip fell open, disclosing the repulsive rotten fangs of the degenerate Joe Slater. I shivered, pulled a blanket over the hideous face, and awoke the nurse. Then I left the cell and went silently to my room. I had an intense and an unaccountable craving for sleep, whose dreams I should not remember. The climax? What plain tale of science can boast of such rhetoric effect? I have merely set down certain things appealed to me as facts, allowing you to conjure them at your will. As I have already admitted, my superior, old Dr. Felton, denies the reality of everything I have related. He vows that I have broken down with a nervous strain and badly of need of long vacation on full pay, which he has so generously given me. He assures me on his professional honor that Joe Slater was but a low-grade psychopath whose fantastic notions must have come from the crude, heldery folk tales which circulated in the most decadent of the communities. All this he tells me, yet I cannot forget what I saw in the sky on that night after Slater died. Lest you may think me biased witness, another pen must add to the final testimony, which may perhaps supply the climax you expect. I quote from the following account of the Star Nova Purcell, verculum from the pages of the esteemed astronomy authority, Professor Garrett P. Service. On February 22, 1901, a marvelous new star was discovered by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh, not very far from Algol. No star had been visible at that point before. Within 24 hours, the stranger had become so bright that it outshone Capilla. In a week or two, it had faded visibly, and in the course of a few months, it was hardly discernible with the naked eye.
Beyond the Wall of Sleep by Howard Philip Lovecraft. Uh, the poem I read at the very beginning, that was uh, Dream Within a Dream by uh, Edgar Allan Poe from 1820. Uh, don't forget, if you got some uh, dream poetry, dream stories, or anything, you want to talk about dreams, write me at sandmanlullaby at gmail.com. Don't forget on Monday, Aaron Hunter, Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Tuesday, you're going to have Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Friel. And Wednesday, Terry's Mysterious Moments with Terry Duder. You've been in the Sandman Lullaby here on RPA, and I hope to see you next time. Ha, 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 ha.